three, two, one, roll the footage! Welcome back, everybody. I'm Simon Severino, your host. And today, my guest is a paleontologist, professor at University of Chicago, and he's the living Indiana Jones, everybody. And we will dive deep into how to make work more deeply satisfying, why science is really adventure with a purpose, and what discoveries and imagination can do for us. Welcome, everybody. Paul Sirino. Great to be here. Excited. And Paul, what are you currently creating? I'm creating a lot of different things, but uh, my work currently is focused in particular on the Sahara and uncovering uh, the last of our great continents, the, 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 the history of dinosaurs on that continent. So we've, we've known about ours and even in Europe and Austria, <laughs> Uh, and, and Central Europe, uh, the story of paleontology really begins in England and in Europe and in the basins of Paris. That's when we understood and actually called the middle life, the old life, Paleozoic. We understood the depth of time. We began to understand that only 200 years ago. But those two, in those 200 years, people have been around and they've dug things up. And surprisingly, they're still finding things in Europe. They're finding things everywhere. But I can't say that we would be revolutionarily surprised by something that would come out of Europe at this point. Uh, we find new dinosaurs, amazing places, Romania, Normandy. But um, Africa is a place you can go. The Sahara is the biggest desert in the world. There's no road that crosses it. It's like being on Mars. You can walk up to something that nobody has seen before. And it's the only place I know of where you are absolutely guaranteed that anything you find is going to be something new. So that's that's uh, uh, my my current focus, and it's been for a while. And uh, I'm interested in figuring out when you go to a place uh, like a Saharan country, what's in it for them? Why would they even let me do such a thing? Uh, some people consider it dangerous, but then again, I live in Chicago. What's more dangerous? You can measure that by inviting a, a Tuareg nomad from the Sahara to Chicago. They're petrified <laughs> because they've heard stories about Chicago. And then we've heard stories about their country. And, and so you have to balance, you have to figure out, you have to balance and figure out risk. And some some people consider what I do risky, they, they call me the living Indiana Jones. And the way I look at it is that, no, it's not very risky. Uh, I look at it, that's calculated risk. If you, if you lead a good life, uh, the way I look at it, it's risk-filled. If you don't want to take any risk, you wouldn't want to walk or run because you could fall over. And even standing is dangerous for a human. We, we stand in a very strange way in the animal world. <laughs> we, we teeter. So why don't you just lie down? If you lie down, somebody could run over you. Why don't you put some, a wood box around yourself to protect yourself? Then you're ready to put the lid on and you're done with your life. That's not the kind of life I want to live. I, I want to live a life where every day matters. It does, where I often don't know what I'm going to be doing exactly the next day because there's so many creative things to do and where you dream and where you take other people along in those dreams and you change the world in some tangible way for the better. 
And that's that's the way I feel about it. Now, no one gave me a chance at doing that when I was a kid because I was uh, one of those kids that didn't connect in school. And that's part of my story. And it's part of my story for uh, for what I'm trying to do here in Chicago. Because when I walk in the neighborhoods just outside the University of Chicago and you see kids that for regions, reasons largely of history and location and and just the momentum of inequality have never had the chance to dream of doing many things, but you know that they are capable because they look just like you. It reminds me of me. I couldn't sit still. I was uh, near flunking a couple of times. I hadn't connected with anything. I didn't find that meaning. And until quite late, read a dictionary, got into college, and then you know, I was on my way, but I thought I was going to be an artist. And then I walked into a museum, the American Museum in New York, one day as a junior in college. And I realized, uh, no, this is what I was going to do. This is what I was built for. I didn't know that at the time exactly, but I knew this is what I wanted to do. I didn't know how, how much fun it would be and how, how good I would be at it. But I saw I could combine art, science, adventure discover it, it was all there and uh that's how i got in the field except the last component which it, and then i'll bring this to a close for another question which is that when i arrived there then to pursue this career and it was everything i could have dreamed of i mean i went to a, a remote island off australia my first summer to collect a horned turtle that looks like a viking on a resort island beach this was unbelievable but couple years into it and I felt this is exciting this is wonderful but you know I could turn gray in this museum I would have named some maybe some reptiles some dinosaurs I don't know what I'm going to find and what would it change who would care and I really was wondering maybe I need to do something I mean the world is falling apart in many ways we have climate crises which were just nascent then you know and uh, I almost left but I got wrapped up in a PhD project that I had designed in a very adventuresome way. I liquidated $13,000, grabbed 500 rolls of film, and went around the world. Started in China. It was just opening up. Went on the Trans-Siberian. Came around, down through Europe. Went through a wall at the time. Got all 500 rolls of films out. And what I came back with is that I'm going to learn more about this world from this field than anything else I could do. And not only that, people really love this stuff. They love history. They want it, the history in their backyard, in their backyard. It's no more like we take all the, all the dinosaurs and put them in the Capitol. No, they, they want something in their backyard. So there's more museums. Of, you know, People are really interested in their own history, in deep history around the world. It's uniform. And that's what keeps me in the field. And that's, that's in a nutshell, uh, What's the fascination with dinosaurs? My, my kids, they're six and three, and today in the morning they wanted to play dinosaurs, and we were different kind of dinosaurs. What is the fascination, this eternal, universal fascination with dinosaurs? Yeah, it's a good question because, uh, and when you think about it, it's absolutely phenomenal. A three-year-old can look at a skeleton in a museum and understand that there's 
bones inside bodies and that you know, they'll put flesh on this thing. It's a phenomenal thing to understand that a human can do that and they do it effortlessly. And that is at the heart of who we are in humans is at the heart of, because it's imagination. Uh, this is also the heart of science. This is also the heart of a good life. Um, we think of science as facts and yeah, that that's wrapped up in it, but it's actually being able to imagine something. The person who put that skeleton together typically had to imagine it from four or five, the missing parts before that. They had to imagine it from a bone or an edge sticking out of the ground. They had to imagine what was in the ground. You understand this is really, this is who we are. This is what we do that's really different than other species. Once I was on stage with Jane Goodall and I said, when you stare into the eyes of a chimp, what's missing? Is it, is it, is it the level of curiosity? Is it the ability to imagine? And she sat and thought for a minute. She said, you got it. And that's what it is. So only one species has captured the fourth dimension and other dimensions, but the but time. We, we're the only ones that could contemplate a dinosaur. We do it very early, as you said, at three years old. Someone can imagine that this was an extinct species. And so what is it that attracts kids it, uh, to dinosaurs? One it forces them to imagine and they love it. Two, this imaginary world is not just any imaginary world. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, dragons and things that never existed. This really existed. And there's names for these things and they can quickly learn more than you know. And they're lost in this world. And it's a real world, but it's an imaginary world. And that's what's magical about it. A lot of people think it's not so big. And no, it's not, it's not the size that they're fascinated with all kinds of dinosaurs. But I believe this is uh, fundamentally why kids are fascinated with it. And one time I was, I was at a press conference in uh, National Geographic and I was announcing this huge dinosaur from Africa. We had resurrected it in the square of National Geographic in Washington, DC. It was stopping traffic. It was. It went up 32 feet. We had guy wires to the buildings on this dinosaur skeleton. And I was in a cherry picker. We were putting the skull on top and I put the skull on top. There was all this press. It was actually one of the movies. You know, all this press was out there and I came down to talk about uh, the first of these African dinosaurs I was finding. And a Reuters press agent asked me in front of everybody after, you know, third or fourth question. So. What does this mean for anybody? You dug this up. What does it mean for anybody? I mean, really, what, what's significant about it? And I thought for a second, and I thought, and I then said, you know, I've never, ever, ever, ever once got a question like that from a three-year-old or a five-year-old or a six-year-old. No, they know what you have forgotten. And this is a lot of what life does to us sometimes. The pandemics, the problems, the issues, the inequity, the, the, the troubles, that we get swept up in it and we get blunted. Our curiosity gets blunted until even when you're a reporter, you can, this is, this dinosaur and its kin are going to lift this country to the first world in, in the museum world. 
and give them something to be extremely proud of, from the president down to the nomads in the desert who never had a museum but always dreamed about one. And here's a, an adult that doesn't understand the value of something that's right in front of their nose. And, and so that's what we want to try to preserve as adults. That's the way I look at it is that I try to preserve, flourish, feed, enhance, and allow my curiosity and my imagination to, to take me wherever I, I, I can go. Is this the way we can make work more deeply satisfying by, by nourishing our curiosity? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. So I, there are a lot of things in a work environment that make it pleasant, that make it interesting, that make it exciting, that make it um, something worthwhile. And, uh, but for me, uh, I mean, you, you, you find people that share your vision, you find people that you get along with and so on, on a mechanical basis. But for me, the way I've found energy and drive is to be creative and is to make a difference. As um, you know, there's a book that I do like that sort of captures it. It's gotten very popular. It's, you know, Daring Greatly. Uh, it's a book that, that, you know, she wasn't planning to be so popular when she started giving talks. She was a professor down in Texas. And um, but I caught on because that's what it's about. And there's many people that won't dare at all, much less greatly. And you really have to stick yourself out there and take a chance and not be blunted by disappointment. Not be blunted by people said, well, you really can't do that. OK, I can't do it now, but I'm going to do it tomorrow. You're not going to stop me. And uh, if you're doing something creative. If I didn't have that attitude, I wouldn't be where I, I, I mean, I, I'd be a hundred discoveries ago. And um, it is the essential uh, aspect of, I think, um, a calculated risk-filled, fulfilling life, taking chances. That's number one. Number two, I think finding meaning for me is that at the end of the day, when my life, I would like to become a fossil. That's my ultimate goal. That's your goal? <laughs> yes, my goal in life is to become a fossil. I've got the pose, the thinker pose, you know. And uh, at the end of the day, have you made a difference? Have you created something that somebody appreciated? I mean, we've overpopulated the world. The world was not meant for us. Some religions make, make it so. It's not. It wasn't meant for us. We were on the world with uh, millions of species which are dying off. Um, we hopefully will find a way to survive. We're a flash in a microsecond of the cosmos. And when you leave this world, hopefully you've left it a slightly better place because we need, we need that. And uh, I don't know where I got that from. I'm not religious. I was raised Catholic. I don't uh, practice any religion. And I don't think we know... Uh, the deepest source of the universe and before the universe and et cetera, doesn't change anything. I think that um, that's right. I, I find, I find true meaning in the work that I do. And if I didn't now leading up to those contributions, those things that make changes, the museums, I'm trying to do uh, in Chicago here, a 
I, I know how I learned my science. I learned my science out of school. Okay, we call that informal learning. Okay, when I was a kid, I was failing in school and I was collecting toads and leaves. My father was a closet scientist. My mother was an artist. I had siblings. We went around. I loved it while I was failing in school. I couldn't read. They wanted to flunk me. My father taught me how to read. I couldn't tell time. It, it was like, I just didn't work. I, I didn't fit in the square walls of a room where you're sitting for 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours with 30 kids. That's sort of a manufacturing idea of how how we learn that probably is going away forever uh, in 50 years because we'll tailor things to how kids learn. And it turns out in a good life, yours, mine, most of our learning is outside of school. School is just a small element of it. So this is most of how we learn. And it's easy to reach kids just like me with this. Oh, you're interested in something. You put them in a room with a, a skeleton or something and they're off to the races. And so my idea is to try to use an informal setting, not to damage schools or anything. They're fine and give them support, give them all the support they need, but give me the kid after school for an hour or two. I'll learn his or her name and I'll guarantee them that I won't forget them anytime they want to come back and you engage them and then you find that they come back and then you find that they eventually understand that they can do. It's a process. And then they're off to the races. And it doesn't matter if they're failing in school, if they're doing well. I love taking, you know, we've, we've showed that we can get kids to graduate in huge numbers that would never graduate by, by, by this approach. And so what I'd like to do, that's what I'm trying to do in Chicago. It's, um, is rooted in my own personal experience. I was sitting in my office one day and a phone rang. This was 15 years ago. And on the other side of the phone was uh, an elderly woman uh, calling from Florida. I was sitting in my office at the university and she said in a wavering voice, I don't know if you remember me, but my name is Arlene Williams. And I was your fifth grade teacher. And I said, Mrs. Williams, I could never forget you. You made me Tom Sawyer. And this woman who everyone feared because she was a martinet and I feared her because I knew I couldn't do well in school, <laughs> made me the star of the show because maybe that's what I was and didn't have to act very much. She made me Tom Sawyer. It was the greatest moment in my whole childhood. My mother took pictures. I had an outfit. I was the star of the show. And uh, I later traveled down to Florida. She was 90 because she was old when I had her as a kid. And her first question was, are you my Paul Serino? I, I, are you that person that I had? And I said, yes, I, uh, yes, I was. I could never forget you. And I went down and I met her and I gave her a claw. She had seen a newspaper story from an article announcing a dinosaur they had found. And, uh, you know, the travesty of teaching is that you don't know what happens to those kids in your class, especially the kid in the back that doesn't, you know, you don't know most of the time. And uh, we became friends. And, and when she passed away, she told her son, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. Make sure Paul knows. And, uh, you know, we became, we became close. And so I, I think that that experience too influenced me very much. Um, it, for those who are in jobs that do have influence on people, everyone 
needs their day in the sunshine. This is the way I call it. You have kids today uh, that have never had a real true day in the sunshine where they felt the warmth of the sun, that they were the center of something. Now with media and so on, we can do this. We can we can let them create. We can let them share very easily. And um, they can be, become their own little stars, you know, in small ways. And, and But those small ways become very big ways later. And so th those are the things in my childhood that influenced me. And ultimately, I think it does apply to the workplace. You, you need to let, you need to nurture, uh, if you're in a position to do so, uh, the people that you work with and the people around you. And sometimes they need a day in the sunshine to get the confidence to move forward. So I, you know, I, that, that's how I feel about, about. I um, love this. I love this. And I'm working a lot with, with teams and with teams that work together. And two things that I've been thinking about lately, you really touched. One is, what if the job of a leader in, in the age we live in, which doesn't really need leaders, we need leadership, but we don't need leaders. So what is our job as leaders? I think it is creating an environment where people can fall in love with, with each other in terms of being curious of each other. I want to know more about you. Show me, um, show me your superpowers. Show me your, 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 your being and your doing. And the second thing, so one is curiosity. And the second thing, the, the day in the sun, it's, it's, it's remarkable. I, I remember one teacher that just said one word that encouraged me to say something in front of the of the class and that changed completely how I felt really low confident to how I felt confident to speak in public. And um, 40 years later, I still remember this moment and it was pivotal. So I think this really touches something. How can we, when we work as a team, how can we have everybody, for example, in the beginning of a meeting, share some magic moments or, or, or have the stage and and instead of you know presentations or whatever uh, industrial industrial age manufacturing style um, of, of flow we have, yeah. And so I think that's important. And and <clears throat> we had a famous educator here who started uh, the the lab school of the University of Chicago. His name is John Dewey. And very very long ago, he said about a century ago, he said, you know, learning is uh, is about relationships. It's about the relationship you have with a teacher, with your peers. It's not really so much about facts and rote things or anything like that. And especially now in this day and age, when you know you can come up with the facts in one second, they're at arm's length digitally. What's more important is what you do with them, and much more. I mean, it's, it's, it used to be that, you know, I thought science was about facts. And uh, mm -hmm. I had this failed sort of origin. I did well to graduate high school. I read a dictionary, got into a big state school, and I felt like I had a clean slate. I was then became this absolute study wart. I mean, no one was going to throw me in the shower. I'd sit there and I'd put a knife by the place where I was studying. I was, I was like a monk. And uh, I, I then got straight A's. And uh, 
complete straight A's. Uh, it, it, it came. Some classes were terrifically hard to the point of crying. I mean, I took calculus. Why not? I'm in college. The only thing was, I, I, I was actually not taking calculus. I was taking calculus, trigonometry, basic algebra. I had missed all this. I didn't know what a cosine was. I don't know. I was cheating. I was doing something else. I, I was taking three or four classes, in fact, and that was a very difficult A to get. And uh, as I passed onwards, I, I, I really didn't understand what science was about at all. I was getting A's in all the classes. And I, and I, in fact, it seemed fruitless and useless because the more I would pack in one ear, the quicker it was falling out the other. <clears throat> I mean, I'd learn all these things about chemistry, <clears throat> about biology. And then um, I was realizing that I, I was forgetting. And, uh, and, and, uh, and then I also began to realize, and now of course it's, it's, it's expanding at an exponential rate that I could never master any field because it was growing faster than I was mastering it. And so I could be the master of nothing. And everything that I would learn, eventually I was going to forget. What's the point? I don't get the point of this. And that's really where I was until I walked in that hall. And it just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that even I didn't realize it for 15 years, 20 years, until I look back on that moment, um, I didn't realize the excitement that I found in science, uh, the adventure. I downplay that. I would say, well, I'm a paleontologist because I like fossils. I, I like the science of it, you know, <laughs> working out evolution and all this kind of stuff. And in fact, I love it because it takes me around the world. I can name and dream of things that people, I, the, the creative ideas are endless. And, um, and I, I have the special gift of putting it together because I started as an artist. It's a huge advantage. Because <laughs> most of what we're trying to do is visualize. We're a very visual species. Most of our brain is devoted to that. And so that's about imagination, by the way. And, and so when you go in the field, you can, you can see things and you can imagine what they are. And then you bring them back and then you can put them together. And it's all about visualizing a lost world. What, what is that except an exercise in imagination, art, artistry, and so on, honed by science, the facts, and putting things together? And being able to write. The other thing I would tell your viewers about um, satisfaction is that if there is if there is not one, if and not in fact more things in your life that you now are super great at, that you absolutely loathed, hated, and felt that you were horrible at, then I think you have more living to do. I mean, I couldn't stand writing. I was no good at it. Even when I was getting my A's in college, there was no reason to that. I couldn't understand artistic writing. There were no rules. Sometimes you break the rules. I would look at these writers. They'd write short half sentences and they, they're great writers. And what are the rules? I mean, I understood, I eventually understood art. I could understand that. And so it was always a struggle. I get to graduate school and I hone my skills, but I still don't love writing. And then I have the chance to write a National Geographic story. Very difficult. They don't think scientists can write and they're generally right. <laughs> you know, how can you communicate to anybody if you're a, 
a nerdy scientist. And it was fun. And then I wrote another one. And then I wrote another one. And they came effortlessly. And I love writing. I love writing now. And I hated it. And that's one of a couple of things that, you know, life is a twisted, long, interesting journey, hopefully, if you dare, and if you take calculated risk. And you're going to find out that you're really good at something. Many things. In fact, you know, I would just say that's the tragedy of life. The tragedy of life is that you will never know what you could have done. You have one pathway. And sadly, that's all we have. And what if I didn't stand in front of that, that, that hall in the dinosaurs? I was set to go into an artist studio in Manhattan, work as an assistant in some fabulous artist studio. What would I, where, where would I have gone? What would I have done? I have no idea. I would live a totally different life. And in fact, that was one point of many points like that. What if I didn't get the job that I got immediately after graduate school? I was prepared to change fields. You know, what if I didn't meet this person? You know, and, and so life becomes uh, a very particular pathway in which you have a lot of choice, but which you cannot relive. And, and so when you are in that situation, you will find that there are many things that you will discover about yourself that you didn't know were there. And maybe they weren't, but maybe they are now. And that's one of them. I love writing. I, I have a question about the adventure of life after one word from our sponsors. Hey, if you like the tools, go grab them for free at strategysprints.com slash tools. Life as an adventure. Sometimes we forget being in responsibilities. We forget. Uh, we, we had our 10 years marriage anniversary and I asked my wife, hey, do you even remember why did you marry me 10 years ago? What was the dream? And she says, it was adventure and freedom. And I go, oh, you are right. It was about, <laughs> no, she said adventure and home, both adventure and home. And I was like, okay, home, we did build it. But what was the adventure? Did we forget to be adventurous and just, you know, to function in our roles? And um, I remind me of myself very often of this question. What is the adventure? Um, do you do you encounter people who see your work and uh, your adventures and uh, and get reminded? Hey, where, where is the adventure? Yeah, I do all the time, and uh, <clears throat> constantly running into people who relate at various points to what I do, which you know has a public dimension, because, and I attribute to perhaps my parents and the fact that I had six siblings that you learn how to communicate. Um, That's and, adventure uh, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, so I have the ability to communicate things. I've always had that ability. My mother uh, was an amazing communicator and teacher. And um, I just was sitting in front of uh, uh, an automated because, uh, you know, remote because of, of the pandemic. 
uh, in Wisconsin, a state speaking to hundreds of kids across the state taking questions. And um, and before that started, a woman came up and said, you know, I had your mother. I had your mother in, in grade school. Amazing teacher. She changed my life. You know, my mother was an amazing communicator, and I, I've, I've inherited some of that. I just took it for granted, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate. So it's, it's fun. Uh, but, um, you know, I think we can get dulled. And, and as I was talking about that reporter, uh, with life's exigencies, and, and get, get some of the adventure and fun beat out of us. And I think if there's anything, when you have a child... If there's anything that um, you should absorb, and it's the most amazing thing, of course, is just the, the level of curiosity from the very beginning, as soon as they are alive, even before they can focus their eyes at six months, they're reaching and touching and putting things in their mouth. And it, the world is alive, much more so than almost anything. You see some aspects of this in juvenile animals and so on, but in humans, it just never stops. And of course, we are juvenilized. If you look at us, we know that many aspects of even my life are juvenilized, but relative to, to other lives, our, our species as a whole is juvenilized. So many of the things that make us human appear along the way, including walking on two legs, including being able to stand and balance, um, including being able to say the sounds of speech, uh, including being able to cry with tears. It's not there when we're born. All these things are uniquely human uh, and, and facial expressions. And they appear after we're born and we don't have a lot of body. You know, all this stuff is related to the fact that we're slowed down. We're juvenilized. And when, we when, do we start, when do we start crying with tears? Oh, that, that happens, you know, because we have, so I taught human anatomy as one of the many things I've done for about 12 years uh, I know this stuff better than the doctors. We have a gland up in the upper left, uh, upper outside pocket of our eye, the lacrimal gland. This is simply not big enough when you're born. Its main job is to send liquid down. You just blinked. It's to, it's a window washer for our eyes, which are very important. They have to be wet, but not too wet. Your eyes are amazing, amazing organs. Now, uniquely among humans because we're built you have to understand we're built for doing what we're doing right now we are built for communicating our lives from that gland we're talking about to sex to everything else is designed for hyper communication language being only one venue for it so we have facial muscles that add to our words that no other species has. They just recently discovered that dogs, some dogs have developed a muscle to lay, lift an eyebrow that occurred during domestication. In the last 10, wolves don't have it, you know, because they're imitating humans. We have these facial muscles for that. So getting back to the lacrimal gland, one, you know, they, they say elephants cry. Well, no, in fact, uh, there's nothing that has the capacity to take a gland, which is a window washer, and say, now I want you just to gush because you're upset and just pour out the liquid. This is about expressing emotion. And uh, it's not big enough when we're born. And so it takes a while, six months or so before, you know, babies cry, spank them when they're born sometimes, you know, and uh, there's no tears. 
That's true. And in fact, their eyes are just adjusting to the world around them. So they, they, they see a fuzzy, they look sort of blank eyed. They see, but they, they, they can't make out the details of faces until, until they, they start looking. And that's also about six months. And so, you know, these things appear, but that's, that's one of the great things. And Darwin spoke about it. Another is, um, we don't know very much about it, but when you get embarrassed, I've seen one of my graduate students get embarrassed and her face just flushes. Sometimes it goes this way, sometimes right. it goes this way, and, and it goes to your ears. And this is a reaction of capillaries. You, you have to imagine what, how do, what is a blush? It's the flushing of blood, but almost like in a wave with no conscious control other than whatever it was that caused you to be embarrassed. You cannot control it. You're embarrassed. You cannot stop it. And this is uniquely human. There's nothing else that blushes. And Darwin noticed these things. And these are all about communication. It's all about communication, but amazing evolutionary things. So we are built for communication because I, I often oh, ask absolutely. myself, what does it mean to be a human? Okay. Well, let's just say, I don't know if you have children, but let's say you're married. So you're, you're, you're a knowledgeable person of... Uh, life within our species. And uh, we are the only species, by the way, just to give you some examples, that uh, have a sequestered ovarian cycle. If you have children, there's a guessing game. Why would there be a guessing game? Why wouldn't you know exactly when you should be with your wife because um, this is the time that she's fertile to have a child? That's only because we want it to be a guessing game because sex is no longer about procreation fundamentally, it's about communication. We're the only species that the female has permanent breasts. Why have permanent breasts? I mean, you don't have a kid, what are they for? They're expensive. I mean, they take a lot of energy and cells devoted to this. They're for pleasure. That's the only reason. There's 4,500 species of mammals that use milk. Duckbill platypus, one of the first. Um, you know, hearkening back to the transition of mammals, and one species has permanent breasts. Your dog doesn't, you know, the breasts disappear, you know, but humans. Okay. And so there's so many things about what we do in all aspects of our life that relate to communication, language being, you know, an extraordinary example, but writing, all these things that are artistry, we, we are designed to communicate. Yeah, we forget about it, but it's, it's completely what, what we are as humans. Absolutely. There is a, a part of a song from Lorenzo Giovanotti from my country, from Italy, where he says, the only fear that I have is that I might become numb to life. And I absolutely agree with him. If there is one fear that I have, I, I'm, I'm not fearful about the economy or pandemics or whatever. These things come and go. But I'm really fearful. Please let me not uh, become numb to, to life and, and, to, and to what's happening, right? I agree. And, uh, you know, and there's, there's challenges in, in your life and you say, well, can I really do that? Uh, I love it when a student comes in and says, um, oh, Professor Serino, you're such a good artist or whatever, but, you know, I can't draw. I, I don't have an artistic bone in my body. Oh, really? Since when have you tried? I send them off to take a life drawing class. Many people have never tried something that they, they have no idea of the capacities that they have. This is what I see when I go in the neighborhoods and I see kids that they have no idea 
of what they can many times, what they can actually do. I'll never forget in my life what turned me around. The turning point for me in high school was when I realized I could do something. I had my day in the sun, fifth grade, sixth grade was the worst. I almost flunked. I, I fell in love with an English teacher. It's the only reason I didn't flunk. I later connected with her. I was so curious about who she was and she was one of the youngest teachers there. I just fell in love with her and I did everything for her class and it saved me. <laughs> I later would, 40 years later, I'd connect with her. Uh, she was married at the time. You know, we, I, I started this conversation with her from one teacher. I found out the other, she's living in Colorado. She's got children and grandchildren. And I said, you know, I have to tell you this, you saved me. And I told her, she, re, she actually remembered me uh, in her class. She said, I was a sweet boy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I couldn't breathe around her and it saved me. And then when I got to high school, I was still wayward. I, I didn't have any focus. And I, my mother's an artist and I went to an art class and um, I did this still life painting on a piece of canvas paper. It wasn't even canvas. And I added a, my French horn to it. And all of a sudden, I, and I added a wine glass and it was, it was clear and you could see through it because I mean, and uh, I, I, I did it with my hands. And I sat it across the kitchen. I remember sitting across the kitchen and looking at it. I did that. It was a turning point. Then I did another one and on can on canvas and I started using tiny brushes and I started learning how to mix paint. I was going to be an artist, but it was a very, very clear turning point. And um, I couldn't turn everything around at once. <clears throat> it was slow. Uh, I was so behind in many classes, but I started at that point. And ironically, I met a friend in high school and he was also named Paul but he was the brilliant valedictorian. So it was like Tom Sawyer meets um, Mr. Perfect. We both played French horn. We sat next to each other. We were completely opposite. And we dug it. We got into each other as best friends. And I taught him how to have, have fun and do bad things. I mean, we did some bad things together, some pranks, some horrible. He graduated as a valedictorian. He took the test to go to college. And he didn't miss a single question. Perfect. He got a scholarship, full scholarship to Northwestern University. I was trying to get a hold of some of my classes, at least. I read a dictionary and I got into the state school at Northern Illinois University. And we met after the first year a couple of times. He lost his way. I don't know how to describe it. He didn't see where he was going or could go. And our lives were like ships passing in the night. I was finding myself in art and then eventually in fossils and he was losing himself. There was nothing, nothing I could do. And he eventually left this world. And uh, my best friend, who would have thunk? One thing for your viewers, life is a long race. It's a long race. You think you're you think you're close to the finish line at 50. I'm 63. And I'm still, I can't see the finish line. And don't count yourself out. I don't care how old you are. Life is very long. It's a long race. No one would have thought I would be here doing what I do. And yet here I am.
Wow, thank you for this. And um, we can feel your energy. How do you keep being, being so curious and, um, and, and inspired and inspire people? What, what helps you stay, stay curious, stay adventurous? Well, you know, <clears throat> I have I have unbounding energy. It is it is true, <clears throat> and uh, part of it is I feel uh, if people look at my life or what I do, they would say, and I noticed this when I I was late at doing everything in life. You know, so whether it was dating, whether it was getting married, whether it was doing, I was always late. And as time went on, it became later and later until I'm sort of what I feel like I'm a generation off. And um, part of that is is just the mental approach to life. It's like you are what you think you are. Uh, your real age is something, you know, your actual age is one thing. And your real age is how you, how you uh, in, interpret your being and what you do. I remain active. I remain youthful in the sense of discovery, adventure, taking on new things. And without a doubt, you know, I'm a generation off as a result. And so when I go in the field, you say, well, you're, you, you work in teams. How do, how, do you, how do you get people to perform under true psychological and physical pressure? The expedition I'm planning to the Sahara is going to get to 120 degrees. We're going to be working in the middle of the world's largest desert, surrounded by guards. Indiana Jones experience without the racism, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, uh, you have to perform under extreme conditions, which are not just physical, but they're mental. And how do you get people to perform at their best for months? No showers. Uh, the first thing is you do it by example. There will not be anybody in the field that works as hard as I do. Uh, and one of the things I send them to prepare for the field is what I call paleo power. <laughs> it's my paleo power exercise routine. <clears throat> for a long time in my life, I was very gifted that I, I didn't exercise at all, whatever. That sort of catches up with you after a while. <clears throat> By the time I got to be about 50, I was like, wow. I went out in the field and I'm like, I'm crippled. I can't handle it. I come back, I need three weeks to recover. So I started talking to some exercise people and they said, well, no, my God, you know, I, I used a jackhammer. <laughs> my arms, I felt like a crab. When I came back, I used a jackhammer for 12 hours one day on a cliffside. And I mean, I literally, it felt like I, my, my joints had creaks in them, <laughs> you know, and I came back and I realized, so then I started this exercise routine and just three times a week, you know, but it's, it's a tough exercise routine. I built up to a tough exercise routine and with advice over how to preserve your joints. Definitely mm -hmm. want to preserve your joints. I stopped running. You know, I used to run. And it's not a bad thing. But, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of pounding on the pavement doesn't do your joints a lot of good. And um, so anyway, it's a tough thing. I've never had an undergraduate be able to do it yet in 45 minutes, what I do in the gym. And when you do that, it prepares you for what you're going to face. And so I send that out to everybody. And they're like, they're looking at some of the weights from, whoa. You know, but um, it does keep you in shape to be able to do you know what you need to do and that's just so much fun i mean um part of the indiana jones experience you know sort of like the movie where he's going around then there's knives and then there's a 
a big pit of alligators and snakes and everything like that. That's, that's just a bit like life. That's a bit like an expedition. <laughs> You're going to run into 10 things you cannot predict. You're going to do your this best. This year was definitely full of fire and dragons and whatever. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And, and your job is to figure out how to get around them one by one. I, I have been on expeditions where it really was looking dire, like there was absolutely no way we were going to survive this. My first expedition to the Sahara that I led, it was absolutely hopeless. There was, um, it, first of all, you, you couldn't communicate to anybody in the country because there was no email at that point. They don't respond anyway. You had to go down there hat in hand. You've got 20 people. You know, half my team was going to leave because we didn't have permission. And it was a they, they had just elected the first president in this country. It was a military zone where we wanted to work with the dinosaurs. Everyone was afraid if we went out there, you know. And then all of a sudden I had a person that got strep throat somehow. We had a kit, but he was bedridden. I don't even know I could get him on an airplane, but that wouldn't help anyway since there was an airplane strike. Oh, my God. We were running out of money, too. The guy that was going to go and, you know, we came across the desert. I only brought what I needed across the desert. I didn't want this bandit ridden. I didn't want to bring all the money. So it was sitting in a bank in England. I'm down in the Sahara somewhere. He's leaving. The money's in England. I got a sick person. Air France strike. Uh, no one's given us permission. My Half of my team is leaving. And we succeeded. How? It turned around within 48 days. I was sitting there going to a, a market with one of the undergraduates. I brought two undergraduates who are still childlike. And they said, listen, you've been at this for, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get everybody out. There's a sick person. I left one guy with a sick person in the middle of the desert in Agadez because he couldn't move. And we're sitting there in this market buying some vegetables and with dwindling money. And uh, the person, the undergraduate says, listen, go to the defense ministry. You know, they, after going to six ministries, they said, well, go to defense they would be the last to give us permission. You know, the, the interior minister said, yeah, well, uh, we got to have defense behind this. So uh, that was a backbreaker. She said, why don't you go anyway? And even if you're not going to do the expedition, I said, yeah, you know, you're right. And so I, with my consort, went to the defense ministry <laughs> and we said it was excruciating. Sometimes it would take a week, two weeks to get a response. And uh, we were out of time. We had wasted a month and a half trying to get permission. And out of money, out of time, sick person, Air France. I mean, it was money and it, it was hopeless. But I went in there anyway and I said, hey, can I can I have permission to go in the desert? And the guy said, yeah, come tomorrow. We'll have your answer. I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> come tomorrow. Their answer. Go to Agadez, form a military guard, talk to the commandant, do your work. I was like, then I get a phone call. Crackling phone. Horrible. Third world country. The student who was with this guy. He's walking. He's walking. He somehow recovered from strep throat, a deep strep throat, and he was alive and moving. And then someone had a girlfriend in France who flew to England, got a satchel of money, French francs from the bank, flew around the strike. There was another airlines at the time. And 48 hours later arrived in the capital with a sack of cash. And finally, the Air France strike was breaking. And so we had what I call the Last Supper. A long table, all the whole team was there. Half the team were leaving. They thought everyone was leaving. And they thought the expedition was over. And they thought maybe I was faking that I did, had, was trying to get agreements or whatever. It was dangerous. We wouldn't do anything. All the youngest people, I had one by one come into my 
my room and you say, what takes leadership and what takes teamwork? And I asked them and I looked straight in their eyes. And I said, I want, want we're, we're thinking about staying because we have permission now. And you have to trust me as a leader that I'm not Machiavelli. That I'm not going to take, I'm not going to risk your life. We'll leave the bones. If I, if we feel that we're in that, if we go one day and feel we can do one day, that's good. Three days, whatever. We're going to say, but you have to trust me as a leader. Are you staying? Count me in, count me in, count me in. All the youngest, nine, and me, 10. And we had one month. We had built, for three years, we built for this expedition. And we sat down and we told everyone else, we're staying. Well, they were very upset because they were leaving and they didn't want anybody to stay. And I called this the Last Supper. And, it, you know, there was, it was uh, very, very emotional and all on film, too. And uh, the film people wanted to leave, but then they were convinced by uh, by the director, no, you have to stay and film this. And so anyway, uh, we headed up to Agadez then. And uh, just, just to make things more difficult, the people who were leaving took all of our water purification supplies. So we had no way to purify water. And the odds were against us. We had so little time. And what was going to happen in this military zone? We went up there and they assigned us 25 guards and we went out. We were to live in an oasis and go out in the field. And I had to find this mystical place where I'd found bones three years before. There was no GPS. All I had was a compass and I had four pictures from the site and a distance. They All the pictures look the same and the desert looks the same. So like flat. How could I even find this? And I, I, we, we went out. We found the site. We took out a dinosaur. We found another predator. We then had to get this across the desert, never been done before. We had to take dinosaurs, six tons, across the Sahara Desert, north to Algeria. Algeria was falling apart. They were beginning, they had just canceled the election. We had to get it somehow across the Mediterranean. No, no, no plan to do that. We did it all. And we arrived back in Paris. I had an agreement with American Airlines. They'd fly any bones I could get to Paris, to Chicago. The bones arrived in Chicago. We named Afrovernator and Jabaria on that expedition. And I've never been able to shake myself in Niger since that time. That's the beginning of it. Do you want to talk about, about grit, about not giving up, about live by example, about wishing and willing something and not being, not being able to accept that something is impossible, about trying to take calculated risk? about make you froze paul but we have Became touched so many things of... yes yeah, and it's and beautiful lifelong friends of the people in that expedition yeah <laughs> we we have touched curiosity adventure how we can make work deeply satisfying and um why science is adventure with a purpose and in, in each stage, you had a personal moment that is so tangible and beautiful, like when you discovered uh, what your purpose is and the, the excitement of that. And I think you didn't just talk about what imagination can do for us. You, you really brought us on an adventure with you. Thank you for this, Paul. And um, where can people find more uh, of you? Where do, where can they find you? So I'm on my website, which is just my name, Paul Serino, you know, uh, uh, at the University of Chicago, you'll find uh, all these stories and more. You'll find what we're doing in Niger. I've created Niger Heritage, which is uh, encapsulates that and I'm, what I'm doing in Chicago. 
you can find about the discoveries and uh, and and so I'm I'm working on a I'm hoping to have a film series soon and so you can find out about stuff there. There's TED talks. There's all sorts of stuff there. I want to see the, this film series. And um, who should be my next guest? Oh, uh, you should get this woman, Brene Brown. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's amazing. But uh, you know, uh, you know, I I think there's um, you run into amazing people that are not famous frequently, and so it's really just people that have a story. Perfect. Thank you so much, Paul, You're Professor. Welcome. Paul Serino, everybody from University of Chicago, thank you for being here, sharing your journey, your wisdom, your adventures, your curiosity with us. And um, we we want to see your, your TV work. See you soon. Okay, carry on. Hey, if you love what you are hearing, you will love our free masterclasses. Go grab them at strategiesprints.com. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one -on -one Sprint Coach. We double your revenue in 90 days.